coming up on today's show, we have good news, everyone. I check out Lychee's latest release, and Chris licks a stamp and sends it. All of it. I'm Alex. I'm Chris, and this is Self-Hosted 27. Episode 27 feels like a lucky one, Alex, because around the time this comes out, it'll be our one-year anniversary. Happy birthday to us. <laughs> Can you believe it? I mean, in some ways it feels like we've been doing this forever. And in some ways it feels like it's been six months. God, they grow up so fast, don't they? And you know what else this means? It means it was a year since you and I went to see Wendell. Right. On that road trip. What a different world it was. I could use a nice road trip like that. Me too. <laughs> well, we have a lot to talk about. I'm going to try to convince you to adopt something. So let me start by saying thank you to a cloud guru for sponsoring this episode. If you're looking to make a high paying career move into the cloud, no better place to start than a certification. ACG has helped more than 2 million people skill up on cloud. AWS Azure GCP exam preps also available. They've got you covered. Get going at a cloudguru.com. Alex, as we record this show, some people may know this. Others may not, but a cloud guru and Jupiter Broadcasting have made a mutual decision to separate and restore Jupiter Broadcasting's independent media status. This demerger will allow Jupiter Broadcasting and a cloud guru to dedicate their resources to specializing content they do best. Jupiter Broadcasting and creating Linux and open source podcast content catered to enthusiasts and industry professionals. And a cloud guru in creating comprehensive, hands-on, multi-cloud computing, Linux and DevOps training for businesses and individuals. A cloud guru and Jupiter Broadcasting share many commonalities, such as a passion we have for our respective missions and an investment we make in creating accessible, accurate, and engaging content that makes a difference to our audience. We also share a belief in the importance of giving back to the open source community. As such, a cloud guru will continue its support of Jupiter Broadcasting with a sponsorship arrangement and will continue to explore future content collaboration opportunities. So we are an independent company again, and as part of that, we have been rolling out some new shows. Linux Action News just relaunched. Da-da-da-da. I'm very excited about that. So am I. That was one of my favorite ways of just, you know, dipping my toe into the pool of Linux news every week. <laughs> That's a funny visual. And then uh, Coder Radio also just relaunched. We just recorded our second episode. So that's out uh, right about now as well. What's funny about my toes? <laughs> it's not so much that. It's like the Linux news pool and what that might actually look like. I'm picturing a pool with a lot of algae. <laughs> you know, a really gross one that needs to be washed a little bit. <laughs> Maybe some ducks came and crapped in it. <laughs> I'm staying out of this. You're going to have to find a shovel, man. I just love it. I just, <laughs> the Linux people know I love, so I get to have a little bit of fun. I have a project for you, Chris, and it has a name with questionable pronunciation, so it's perfect for you. Oh, okay. I'll give it a go. You ready? I'm ready, yes. I'm going to say, okay, it's L-Y-C-H-E-E. -E. I'm going to say Lychee. You bastard. You copied me. <laughs> That's not what you said five minutes ago. <laughs> well, I was either that or Lychee. I just wasn't. I, I could be Lychee. <laughs> well, I think Lychee. I've, I've always said Lychee to myself. Okay. Oh, okay. All right. But the, the whole big thing was you were going to get it wrong, but I, I don't think you did. So good job, Chris. Although for all you know, you have it wrong. True. Yes. Well, I mean, you are speaking to the guy that read Hermione as Hermione for about the first two Harry Potter books. So. But that's, that's not what really matters. What matters is this is a self-hosted photo gallery. Yes, sir. So Lightroom and those kind of things come with built-in galleries and stuff like that. But obviously, if you stop paying Adobe, those galleries go away. That's what happened to me. I stopped paying Adobe for a bit and my galleries went away. And I'm like, hmm, 
This is probably a solved problem in the self-hosted space. And yes, there are tons, and I do mean tons, of photo galleries. But for me, none are quite as simple and just fit the bill of doing nothing except for just displaying my image in a distraction-free way with basic album support. And that's what Lychee does fantastically well, I think. So if you head over to gallery.selfhosted.show, I am in the process of, hopefully by the time the episode airs, setting up a gallery for you all to go and have a look at what Lychee looks like. But in the meantime, you can go and take a look at their GitHub. They're at lychee.org as well. And it's a fully open source photo gallery app. And I think it's the best of the bunch. It's clean. It's really easy to navigate. And the UI is clean. And it has various size thumbnails for the images, which really displays them nicely. Like you have this one at the beach, and it's a super wide shot of birds flying on the wa- along the water. And it displays that one as a large panorama in the list. It does a really good job of doing that and making it all work. This is super slick. Now, my question for you is, how are these photos stored on the back end? Is it just looking at a directory and then indexing them and presenting them? Or are you uploading them through a web form? Like, what's that like? Well, come on, you know me. If it doesn't run in a container, I don't generally run it at all. (laughs) Okay, of course. So I'm running it out of a Docker container, a Linux container. Someone actually wrote in and told me off for calling them Docker containers, you know. They're not Docker containers, Alex. They're Linux containers. I know. I I swear I even said in the episode that Docker is the Kleenex of containers and someone still wrote in. (laughs) Anyway, thank you for writing in. I love hearing from you all, of course. (laughs) (laughs) But I do know the difference between a a Linux container and Docker container. Thank you. Uh, Right. Going back to Lychee. Yeah, it's uh, running out of a container. I do a volume bind mount to the images. So I'll go and sign in. And once I'm signed in as my admin user, I am able to create albums and upload through the web interface. So you can import via link from a server. Oh, I haven't tried that one. Or Dropbox. Oh, interesting. That's not bad. Those are a couple of good options, really. Yeah. So this action will, if I import from a server, you point it to a folder or subfolder which will be located in the following directory. So I assume that means a volume that you've bind mounted. So this is probably a way to import entire directory structures worth of pictures at once. So I didn't know that feature existed until just now. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) That does seem nice. And Lychee just released, well, I say just, in 2020 time anyway, just released a new release in April, uh, version 4, Lots of changes in there, so head over to GitHub and take a look at some of them. So in our off-air conversations, I have kind of grokked that you are an anti-Syncite. You don't like the Sync Thing project. I know you've got uh, experience from BitTorrent Sync back in the day. You obviously have experience with NextCloud. And I'd like to take a minute to try to convince you and maybe a couple of people in the audience to give Sync Thing another try. If it's been a little while... It might be worth a go. I, too, like you, had tried it, gave it a decent like 30-day try, actually a couple of times, and both times walked away very frustrated and decided I wasn't going to use it. If you're not familiar with SyncThing, it is a continuous file synchronization program. It synchronizes files between two or more computers in real time. It uses encryption. 
There is no cloud storage. It is from machine to machine. It's a, it has a peer-to-peer discovery network. It uses an open protocol. It's open source. And it's private. There's no data stored anywhere else that could be indexed or inventoried or reviewed. It uses a key system for authentication. It's overall, once you set it up, fairly just simple and just goes. It's really kind of set it and forget it kind of background stuff. So I'm looking at your server now. You shared with me fish sticks. Yes, that's what we've called your server. Uh, you shared with me this through sync thing and you gave me a, a code, like an ID. If there's no middleman, how did my server reach your server to do that initial key exchange behind firewalls? Which is so cool, isn't it? So if you actually just watch the logs when you first fire up your sync thing server, you can see it doing a peer-to-peer discovery mechanism. There's a shared directory amongst them that uh, they can use to discover each other. And it's incredible, actually, when you think about it, how fast that actually works. In that initial key exchange, there's a third-party server somewhere, surely. like it, My, my server is talking to a shared directory. Does that mean every sync thing in the world is also talking to that shared directory? So it's like a, a, like a phone book for sync things? In a sense, there is a sync thing discovery server uh, that finds peers on the internet. So it's a, it's a peer-to-peer system. And so there's a couple of directory servers they can check, and then they very quickly populate and discover them. In fact, it's very impressive when you think about it, how fast it does populate. Mm-hmm. So the project just maintains a global cluster for public use uh, that by default, sync thing just uses. But you can point it at any discovery server you want, or you can tell it not to do that uh, at all. It's exchanging these keys, though, so it's it's nice and encrypted. It's secure. And then there's a network of community-contributed relay servers as well. So if you're behind some particular tricky NAT, like I am in the RV, it will automatically help your relay server join that pool and get discovered by the other sync thing servers and actually make the sync session start even behind a double NAT. That's also a, a community contributed thing that by default uses those community servers, but you could point at something else. So there's no, you know, hosted service that I'm connected to that's going to go away when some company buys another company or something. No, and not only that, but there's really no one company that goes down that takes this out. But for me, one of the areas I've relied on sync thing a lot recently is transferring files with my clients that maybe are producing media. So I have chrislast.com slash consulting, and I have a handful of clients, some that are doing video, mostly audio, but some that are doing video. And these are really large files because they're they're recording raw files, and then they're asking me to like cut them up or do something with them. And we looked at it, and for cloud storage, like through Dropbox or OneDrive or even using something where you'd upload it and download it. It's very expensive for these 40 gig files and there's like maybe a couple of them and they take forever to upload and download. So it was just a light above the head kind of moment, you know, where the light goes on and I realized, holy crap, this is the perfect job for sync thing because there's no cloud provider. So there's no cost there. Both my, my editing system and the system they're recording on have copious amounts of free space, terabytes of free space. So why not just have them go directly to each other? I don't need a cloud server in the middle that it's also syncing to. I don't need a big suite of software like NextCloud offers sitting on top of my sync. I just want this computer's file system writing to this computer's file system. 
And the more I use SyncThing, the more it feels like it creates this pervasive universal network file system for me. I wonder how much, you know, storing my 40 terabytes on Dropbox would cost me. Yeah, a lot. <laughs> and then so I can just pick a directory and give you a link, which is effectively what we're doing with SyncThing. Right. Yeah. I mean, the the cost alone of, of you know, S3 or a Dropbox or a Google Drive for that amount of storage is, yeah, this is quite compelling. I have to be honest, there's the peace of mind aspect of it too. Right now, I'm getting ready for a road trip and there'll be a good portion where we go off grid. That's kind of like just something we do kind of on the regular now. And after chatting with you, it dawned on me, you know, I'm a fan of Open Audible. I don't have all that stuff at my RV, but I have it here at the studio. I can use SyncThing to lift and move all of my audiobooks that I want to listen to on this road trip. And it just does it in the background as the bandwidth that the RV allows. And it just does it silently and, and patiently to a Raspberry Pi. And it creates this network syncing effect where I can move whatever I want, even if it could potentially flag some copyright bot, even though I own it, right? I own that stuff. I bought it. I just want to listen to it in a different device, but it would still trigger a bot. I don't have to, I don't have any of that worries with SyncThing. So is everything encrypted then between different servers when you're syncing? Yes, it is. And um, they have an open bounty program to try to encourage people to discover issues and they have a dedicated security page at syncthing.net that gives you front and center information on how to report issues, where to get their keys, if you need to verify something or sign something, and uh, how to report bugs. Just all boom, right there. They take it pretty seriously from what I can tell. And they have a foundation that they've created behind the project as well that puts out annual reports and has created bylaws and seems to really run the operations of the project for them. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to set a reminder for, let's say, four months' time. And we'll check back in in an episode in about four months, and you can ask me whether I've switched or not. <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm skeptical. I'm tempted. I am tempted. And I tell you, my, my main use case for syncing files around would be my MacBook Pro, where I keep all my photos and stuff like that. Yeah. My general workflow is, you know, if I go out and take some pictures, I'll import them onto the MacBook edit them directly on that SSD. And then as I'm making those edits, you know, that creates the sidecar XMP files and stuff like that. If it would send it back then to my NAS as like a read only situation, that's my primary use case for something like this. Where I ran into some issues was when it was trying to index existing content, that's particularly, you know, I've got about two terabytes worth of very small files to index for for pictures for photos and uh it seems to just choke down on that for a couple of days on the server side and then again on the laptop side as well so it because i only wanted a one-way sync uh it seemed to struggle a bit so i actually be really interested to know how it handles a bunch of files because that was the achilles heel of BitTorrent sync i don't remember if you recall i actually bought BitTorrent sync uh, when you had it on and filter probably half a year, half a decade ago. Yeah, me too. Um, but you throw it like in a directory with a lot of files and it was just a mess. And then um, I changed to Resilio Sync. Right. And then Resilio Sync. Yep. My tip for success is have a master server of truth, something that's online when the other ones come online. What I messed up, I think, in the past 
is I had was mostly using SyncThing on laptops, and they would be on and offline at various times, and one would come online, and it just I think it just caused problems. Now, I run it continuously in the RV and continuously on the NAS, but I'm also considering tossing it up on a VPS to just make sure I always have a source of truth up there, not syncing the files, but running as my own discovery server and something they call an introducer server that will automatically introduce a client to all of your other nodes. I'm thinking about trying that. So, All right, now you got me. That's, uh, that's pretty cool. <laughs> Push notifications. This is something that has been a solved problem for a long time. And somebody asked me in, in the self-hosted Discord last week, how I handle push notifications. And I thought, well, doesn't everyone just use pushover? I actually never have. I have heard of it. I have to be honest, I've never really thought of what a great use case would be other than possibly alerts from some systems, some software. Alerts is the primary use case, I would say. For a while, actually, I was using it for Home Assistant notifications. I also wrote a little script, which is on GitHub under the name Ironic Badger slash Bootslace, a little Python script, which lets you send notifications from a Linux or any, any Python capable system, I suppose. What I use that for is to announce when my Linux boxes are booted. So my remote server at my dad's house in England, for example, every time that boots, the at reboot cron job is to call Bootlace, which sends me a pushover notification. And that's really useful for a remote server. You kind of piqued my attention there with the systemd service. So a service that I have on every box I essentially deploy now is a systemd unit that creates a self-repairing SSH tunnel back to a Linode machine of mine that is always on, always persistent, so I could jump to machines from that one VPS wherever I'm at. Does that make sense? You follow me? A jump host or a bastion type server. Right. And where I could see an advantage here is if I, there was a way within that setup to generate an alert when that tunnel has, con- has gone down or something. If there's there a way to hook in at that level of the Linux system? Well, guess what? I wrote a blog post. <laughs> oh, Alex, that's perfect. Linked in the show notes. It uses my bootlace script, which was one of my sort of junior programming assignments at... Uh, at university. So uh, it just, you need to generate a couple of tokens from the pushover interface. And then once you've got those tokens, you just add it to your cron with the at reboot to start with, and then just call the, the script from there. It looks like at the core of it, you can generate a push notification just by presenting the token, the user and calling a certain URL. Yep. That's pretty much it. So pushover have an API, which when I wrote this tool, you know, several years ago, there wasn't a lot in this space. Pushover's API was a lot more basic too. Whereas now, if you go to the Pushover website and have a look at their API documentation, you can call this thing using curl from the command line, or you can use Perl, Ruby, PHP. They've got a whole bunch of documentation, which, you know, curl's installed on every system. So that might be the way to go, Chris. Pretty neat. All right. I will give it a look. I've heard of it before. And now that it's gotten your recommendation, I think it's worth a a look. I posted this blog post in the Discord and uh, straight away, as is always the way, somebody said, why didn't you do it this way? (laughs) Of course. (laughs) And I'm like, well, I didn't know about this way. And this was uh, Roxidus, Roxidus, Roxidus. I'm sorry. One of our listeners from Norway. Anyway, he's very active in the Discord. Lovely chap. 
he gave me a link to a GitHub repo called Caron C App Rise. And that is in the show notes as a link. And this thing is like the universal notification library for literally anything you'd want to do. You can send messages to Twitter, Facebook, XBMC, Slack. Pushover is one of those, funnily enough. Push Bullets, another one. Nextcloud, uh, Mattermost, If This Then That. So you could have an If This Then That event trigger when your server uses AppRise, which you could then put in a script when it reboots, and it's fantastic. It sounds cliche, but I really like that you can send it to Slack because then I actually will see it. <laughs> I've, I have to have that up every day anyways. So I don't know with, whether it's because I've heard it so many times with that little that it does. Yeah. That little three dot noise it makes. Oh, Does it trigger you? Does it hit you? Gives me nightmares. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. I, I have, I've actually muted it. So, you know, what have you and I said a lot? I don't know how much we've said it on the show, but you and I have said a lot that somebody should create a store and just take these Tasmodo compatible devices and pre-flash them and start selling them as a product. Mm-hmm. In fact, we've even said maybe we should just do it. Dang it. Maybe we should just do it. Well, a listener out there in the self-hosted community has taken it upon himself to do just that, and he has launched cloudfree.shop, and it looks like one of the first things he's done is a cloudfree smart plug. Check this thing out, okay? So he's created it for $9, and he's pre-flashed it with with Tasmoda, and uh, it's essentially just set as a base image ready to go. And he reached out to you, didn't he? via the discord again yes all good things apparently start on discord this week so david reached out to me via discord and said hey thanks for the great idea i've i've turned your great idea into my next big thing <laughs> i think he's uh, at college so some of some of the funds from this for him for example will go to towards his college uh, fees tuition i suppose you call it here don't you now here's the question alex did he give you a hookup for the audience he did indeed you can support the show by using the coupon code self-hosted at checkout. That's all one word, self-hosted. Well, that's great. That's really cool. He says he's got a lot in stock too. I uh, I think this is nice because the no cloud forever paired directly with Home Assistant via MQTT, that is my kind of language right there. Just imagine taking one of these things out of the box and it never, ever talks to anything outside your house ever in its entire life. That's like going back 10, 15 years. You know, now we've got toasters that talk to the cloud. We've got fridges, smart plugs, light bulbs, you name it. Mm -hmm. This thing will be 100% owned by you. There's no business models at play, your data. I mean, I don't know what companies are doing with my power socket turning on and off schedule anyway, but I suppose metadata is, is, is powerful. So yeah, even just knowing when you're home and active is useful. Yeah, I suppose so. And then there's the angle of you, this this device is yours until it physically stops working. Whereas, as we've seen with m- many different IoT vendors, they can basically cut you off at any moment that their business model decides. Right. And when it comes to something in the home, you know, that's that is a big deal for me. I still have a few of those TP links that work great, but I would imagine I would never be able to set them up again if I had to for some reason. And TP-Link had pulled the, uh, the the Casa app or whatever. Where's the incentive for TP-Link if you haven't bought a new physical piece of hardware in 20 years? 
That'd be a record for me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, from them, like it's it's the planned obsolescence model, literally in action. So while we're talking about hardware, there was that group buy for the power monitoring pie. That's right. Yeah, I almost forgot. Uh, and I honestly did forget last episode. So I'm very sorry, David. Two Davids. This is a different David. This is the power monitoring David I'm talking about. So he set up a website over at power-monitor.dalbrecht.tech. That, that link is in the show notes because I completely butchered that. But this is now essentially a web store. You can go and buy your DIY power monitor kit for $30. What the group by form that you all filled out enabled us to do was, well, I say us, David's done all the work. All I did was literally give, give him a plug. What David's done is he's actually built, he's he's known how many orders are going to come in approximately. And he's been able to order all those components in, put them in little baggies, design a custom PCB. So everything that you need is over at that link in the show notes. You can buy the um, the CT clamps, the current transformer clamps, the things that actually do the reading of the power. Um, you can buy the power adapters as well as the, the actual power monitor kit itself. So total cost, I would imagine, would be in the region of 100 bucks by the time you've got everything that you need. The actual power monitoring kit itself is $30 as priced on the website. He gave me a code that was for all of the self-hosted people that were part of the group buy to get an exclusive $10 off. Now, we don't make anything from this. This isn't a sponsorship or anything like that. It's literally just a cool project I saw on Reddit, which I got in touch with the author and here we are. Yeah. Uh, the coupon code is all one word, self-hosted. It's actually kind of cool that the community is working on these hardware projects and either you're reaching out to them or they're reaching out to us and we're chatting and getting details and they're creating codes for our audience. I mean, that's pretty cool, man. Well, I think we're in an interesting kind of time for open source. I was listening to a point that you and Mike made in Coda this week about how VS Code is kind of the universal development operating system, if you like. That kind of struck a chord with me. Like I've stopped futzing with my tools now. I kind of I just use VS Code everywhere and I get on with real work far more often because I'm not chopping and changing the whole time. Yeah, and I think that that shift has has opened it up to a lot more people who are also hardware tinkers and software tinkers and they're bringing these two passions together. And if they're doing it from a Windows 10 machine with WSL, it's no big deal. It's just to it's totally normal now. It's not just only people on Linux that can know how to Telling that into a USB device. <laughs> you know, it's opening it up to more people, and I think that's pretty awesome, too. I have a question that I put out there, and if you have an answer, self-hosted.show slash contact or tweet me at Chris Lass. I have a DC-powered, it's an awning system. It goes, you know, brings my RV awning out, and then you push down, and it brings my RV awning in. So it's like a rocker switch, and it's a DC power system that powers the motor. I had to, before the show today, drive home... <laughs> Unlock my front door, sit there, and hold the button down so that my awning would come in, and then close the door, lock my RV back up, and drive back down to the studio because the wind just randomly started picking up above 30 miles per hour, and that's enough to really damage something like that because it's basically like a huge wing along the side of my RV. And it just, as I'm driving there, I'm thinking to myself, there has got to be a way to either make this accessible via Home Assistant so I could just remote into Home Assistant and trigger it, or even like a sensor, like a wind sensor could trigger it, 
which is how they do it on newer RVs that have fancy awnings. They have wind sensors built in. Is it a low voltage switch? It must be. I'm not sure. Because what I do for my garage door is I have a, uh, what's it called? A Sonoff SV, Sonos, Sonoff Safe Voltage, I think is what it stands for. And this will do like 12 or 24 volts or something like that. Don't quote me on that. I think it's that region anyway. Um, maybe it's five. I think it's five volts. I'm sure this must be 12 volts what I'm working with. And using ESP Home, I'm able to set a switch to stay open or closed for a certain amount of time in software, you know, with a delay or something like that. If I had a contact sensor, so I knew it was, yeah, that'd be tricky because you have to hold it just for a certain time to open or close it. That is tricky. Well, you know how long that is, right? So you just program in hold button for 7.2 seconds or something. Yeah. And it will just keep the relay closed for that length of time. You come up here, let's wire it in. I love other suggestions too, selfhosted.show slash contact. Maybe there's a solution there because I'd love to solve it. I kind of started to um, pull back on the RV automation stuff. Like I thought maybe I'd taken it far enough. And then I came across a dude who's automated like everything, every bay door, flushing his tanks, everything's automated. Everything's automated. And then I thought, okay, there's something to aspire to. <laughs> I got to get a hold of that guy. <laughs> Here is motivation enough for home, for home automation. Anything that gets you further away from your own poop. <laughs> no kidding. You don't want to even know the stories, Alex. You really don't. I'm now imagining the absolute worst case scenarios. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to try to get a hold of that guy uh, and get some ideas from him. Uh, I know this is something that's developing more. I'm seeing more and more people talk about it. People have contacted me. It's a thing. So they're, they're selling them like crazy, the RVs right now. Some of them are nerds buying them. And they want to do crazy things like automation. Now, there are a couple of other options for people who wanted to do power monitoring. I actually set one up about three months ago from circuitsetup.us and they make uh, an integrated board you can buy, you know, pre-made, pre-soldered board, which connects up to an ESP32. This thing sells for about $70 and that gives you six channels of monitoring. So it's, you know, 60-ish, 65. So it's about $70 for the board. CT clamps are again about 10 bucks, same as the... Um, other group by project that we talked about with David. And um, this thing, I tell you what, because it's just uh, running on the Node MCU, okay, the ESP32 variant, it's been solid, really, really good. And I have it connected to my AC units. And so in my home assistant, you know, AC cards, I'm able to get real time information about how many watts my each AC unit is pulling. Neat. Uh, and, and then I use that against my utility you know the electricity cost times that by kilowatt hours or whatever and so i can see i've spent exactly one dollar and 83 cents on air conditioning today it's actually not as bad when you do the actual math i'm like yeah i'd pay two bucks to be really comfortable yep yeah, that's about totally worth yeah. It. <laughs> <laughs> yeah now the power draw and whatnot that's a whole other uh discussion but you're probably gonna have a lot more to talk about that in the future i'd imagine yeah, I think so. I mean, the, the, that particular one was inspired by a video over on DigiBlur's YouTube channel, which there's a link to in the show notes. But I had some other listeners write in when I mentioned I was going to do a sort of mini roundup of the energy monitoring options. OpenEnergyMonitor.org. Now, this thing is super duper cool. does exactly what it says on the tin. It lets you monitor things that consume or create energy. 
So solar is supported, EV charging, you can monitor your heat pump. They have all sorts of different things, uh, sort of like recommended builds almost. So if you go over to their shop, they have a bunch of different options that you can buy. You know, there's Raspberry Pi shields, web connected base stations. Man, if you're a nerd, this is right up your street. Now, this one happens to be based in the UK. So if that matters to you, then uh, there's another option for you there. They also have guides, though, even if you don't want to buy anything that could be really useful, including integrating them with Node-RED or MQTT. So this is interesting because I very, very much would like to get as detailed as possible insights into what is drawing power. I was out in the woods just a couple of weeks ago, and my system is using 500 watts of power, and I don't have anything unusual on. My fridge isn't running. I, I'm not running anything strange, but all of a sudden, 500 watts of power being consumed. What the hell is using 500 watts? You didn't buy one of those new NVIDIA GPUs, did you? <laughs> I never did figure out what it was, actually. It just eventually stopped, whatever it was. It just stopped. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, oh! And then the night before, you see, because we were a little rust, we were a little rusty. The night before, we had left the water heater in electric mode, and it draws like nine hundred watts while it's heating the tank, Ooh. and that kept going all night long. A little dashboard, you know, a little bit of information would go a long ways here. So this is so cool. So, OpenEnergyMonitor.org. We'll have a link in the show notes. But I'm just looking at the guides alone. Even if I don't buy a single thing, this could really be helpful. Yeah. Now, the fundamental thing about all three of these different options is that they all pretty much utilize, largely speaking, the same technology. They're using these CT clamps. And these are little transformers that basically clip around an electric cable, monitor the electric field going through that cable, and output a very low voltage, which you're, you can use a headphone jack or something on the other end of the CT clamp. And the chip will monitor the voltage coming off of the clamp, and then you can extrapolate from the, those pieces of information how many amps are being drawn. And that's it. That's really cool. Boy, I've gotten some good stuff out of this episode. Thank you, Alex, and thank you out there to the community who have been getting in touch with us. Again, that's selfhoster.show slash discord or selfhoster.show slash contact if you just want to fill out a form. I want to thank a cloud guru for sponsoring this episode. You know, a cloud guru now includes cloud playgrounds. This means for Azure, AWS, or the Google Cloud platform, if you want to learn, if you want to get hands-on experience, if you want to create sandboxes and try things, experiment and break things, you can do that now on ACG's credit card, not yours. That has bit me once before. One time and one time only, I accidentally got myself like nearly a $300 bill because I was just trying to learn AWS. This was a little while ago. It was very embarrassing. It was... <laughs> It was really embarrassing. A former colleague of mine has that beat, though. I think he, his bill was like three and a half thousand dollars in a month. Oh my goodness! Yeah, so you got to be careful with that. Yeah, so this and it's a nice resource because it's it built in with all the other things on the training platform. It's just one click to a fast, fresh, disposable cloud environment at your fingertips. Go to cloudguru.com to check it out. And thanks to a cloud guru for sponsoring this episode of Self Hosted. Also, I'm going to give a shout out for our Twitter handle at Self Hosted Show on Twitter. You'll get announcements about new releases or anything news related to the show. It's also a great way to ping us for questions if you like to do the Twitter thing and you're not on the Discord or don't want to do a contact form. We got all the options these days, Alex. So many options. Well, while they're over there, how do they follow you? I'm at Ironic Badger on Twitter. Look at that. I'm at Chris Lass, and the network is at Jupiter Signal. Links for everything we talked about today are at selfhosted.show/slash 27. 
little post-show time, I saw a really tasty picture of a pizza that you cooked on your ceramic barbecue. Is that the right proper term for that thing, that beast? Well, you should know. You're the one that uh, sweet talked me into buying it, honey. Well, you know where my hesitation is, is because I'm going to pull a Kleenex here and just, you know, the big green egg is what I think is the, like, the Kleenex of these things. (laughs) I have the big red egg, which is uh, totally not inspired by or any relation to the green egg. No, of course not. So on a barbecue, but that thing gets cranking. Yeah, it's, it's pretty crazy, actually. So I don't know what this is in Celsius, and I can't believe I'm saying that out loud. So I wanted to do some Italian-style Neapolitan pizza. Oh, yeah. Thin crust, slightly charred, a little bit of mozzarella on the top, a couple of olives, some prosciutto, you know, beautiful Italian-style pizza. What temperature do you think that cooks at? I would imagine you could cook at like 375 or 425 in an oven. You could. Yeah, you could. (laughs) But it's not going to be good. But the thing is, the thing is with italian style dough is you use a lot of very fine double o flour ah. and that actually prefers to be cooked at above 750 is that flour that's licensed to kill <laughs> that was shocking <laughs> <laughs> terrible terrible joke i know i'm sorry anyways continue on yeah double o flour um so uh, so yes i i have this it, it's, uh, I think, eight, about 18 inches in, in circumference. And this thing is, um, it weighs probably more than I do. It's freaking heavy. <laughs> oh, I'm picturing you just moving this thing. It must have just been horrendous. Like, that's where it stays forever. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we got it home in my truck. I, I actually went and picked it up from Lowe's. God, you're so Americanized now. I know. Picked it up rather than went and bought. Yeah. In your truck. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, it's true, everyone. The accent is fake. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's real fake now. Real fake, boy. <laughs> I am in North Carolina. <laughs> now you're losing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's let's stick with my real accent, shall we? Uh, so, yeah, I pick, pick, picked it up from Lowe's, and they had a forklift truck at their end to put it on the back of my pickup. When I got it home... I actually had to unbox the thing on the bed of my pickup because it was so heavy. Yep. Build the stand that it came with and then sort of gently roll it and and try not to drop it on the floor. You know, you've seen that video on on Reddit or wherever it is where the guys are rolling this big concrete pipe off the back of a truck. It hits the floor and just collapses. <laughs> I didn't want that to happen with my nice expensive, it was about a grand, I think, egg, ceramic egg thing. Am I hearing cicadas in the background or are those birds? Yeah, yeah, North Carolina is uh, still pretty warm at this time of year, so wow, that's just bugs. You know what's funny about that is that is a quintessential thing about your area and down in Texas, and it's something we do not have here. Like that to you, uh, you know, imagine growing up with that. If you heard, if you hear that sound to you, it's like, oh, it's summer back home again, right? Mm-hmm. But we don't have anything like that here. Yeah, no, it's still very weird to me. Yeah, it's super weird because they sound like legit animals into the trees sometimes. They have some gnarly sounds every now and then. Yeah, there's crickets, and then there's these little things that go like, in the background. So you crank this thing up to near, what, eight, 900 degrees? As hot as you can possibly get it. So the way you control temperature is there's a couple of vents. There's a vent at the bottom and a vent at the top. 
normally when you're smoking a brisket or some ribs or something, you're in that kind of 200 to 400 kind of normal cooking range. This is Fahrenheit. Yeah, you're smoking that meat. Smoking those meats. Um, you put the vents probably an eighth open at the bottom and an eighth open at the top, and that will keep the temperature in that sort of 200 to 250 range just all day. When you want to do the pizza, to get up to 900, you have to fill the entire firebox pretty much as full as it will go. This is with like charcoal. Put a heat deflector, raise the pizza stone up so you have a ceramic pizza stone as well as a ceramic heat deflector because you don't want to directly heat the pizza stone because that will just right. make it ballistic. Yeah. <laughs> Lava. <laughs> yeah. And then you somehow use one of these pizza paddle things to shuffle your pizza onto this stone with both vents wide open. And you cook this pizza in 90 seconds, two minutes. It's done. Jeez, that's cool. That's better than a microwave, really. Well, uh, we just, you're talking three hours to proof the scratch-made dough. It's not too difficult. There was a New York Times recipe I followed, and it, it came out beautifully well. How long does it take you to get the grill rip-roaring like that, though? About an hour. Ah, okay. Yeah. If you think about it, it's going from zero to seven, eight, nine hundred degrees Fahrenheit in an hour. That's that's all right. I would feel compelled to like use that grill heat for something else. Like, what else can I cook? <laughs> yeah, it's true. So this is the thing that's particularly good about these eggs, right? Is is that they're they're just amazingly flexible. They hold the temperature really well because they're ceramic. The outside, when you're at nine hundred degrees inside, the outside's at about. 100 degrees celsius i don't know what that is in i've got one of these infrared thermometers that only re reads in celsius <laughs> so i know i know the outside gets to boiling so you don't want to touch the outside but inside is you know significantly hotter than that but if i wanted to remove the heat deflectors and remove the pizza stone i've now got an open grate grill barbecue that i can just fry some steaks on or, or grill some steaks nice or burgers or sausages or whatever and i can split the racks at different heights and i can have one side with a heat deflector and one without and it's great. Sounds like a little steak with pizza is the way to go. <laughs> now you're making me hungry. <laughs>